and he is going to read our text for today. Um, We're going to read verses 1 through 14 of chapter 5, although our actual focus is going to be verses uh, 3 through 7 in particular. But let's stand together as we read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Lord, would you allow the words of Ephesians to settle in our hearts right now. Lord, help us to be mindful that these are your words. They're not man's words. They're your ideas. They're your instructions. And so, Lord, we need to not only take them seriously, but take them to heart. And I ask, Lord, that today, that um, as we open up your word, and as I am your mouthpiece, that um, I would be faithful, Lord, to, to proclaim what your word says and to press it home to your people so that we can be conform to the, the image of your son so that we can be uh, on this path, Lord, to becoming um, what you have desired for us to become now that we are your children. So give us grace. Give us hearts, Lord, that are humble and teachable. Give us ears, Lord, that are eager for your truth, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we, uh, we welcome you and I want you to be aware that we are working our way through the book of Ephesians. And so the reason that we are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, is because it happens to be the next section of Scripture. Um, I did not get up this week and say, hey, let's do this uh, for any agenda, except for the fact that it was next. And sometimes when you do that, um, you're going to come to passages that our culture deems very unpopular. And this specifically is one of those unpopular passages. Why? Because it spells out clearly God's perspective on a society that has turned its back on him and is pursuing an ungodly sexual agenda. I heard my wife um, this past week when we were sitting at a wedding just telling someone that she has told my children, don't be surprised that sometime in my life, talking about me, um, that, that your dad is going to be taken to jail for what he preaches. Um, 
And, and friends, that is, a, that is becoming much more of a reality. Uh, and this is one of those passages that is considered controversial. So let me say at the outset that what we're going to be studying this morning is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the believers in and around the city of Ephesus. And that if Paul is speaking through the words of this letter, then it is God that is speaking through him. And so what we have here is God in his sovereign providence breathing out his will through the personality and the words of Paul to the Ephesian people and ultimately then to us. So my job is to show you what Paul and God are saying to both the Ephesian church and to Gateway Bible Church by means of simple and consistent application. That being said, if you find yourself being offended at what I say this morning, please understand that you're not really offended at me, you're offended at what Paul is saying. And if you still find yourself being offended by what Paul is saying, understand you're really not offended at Paul, you're really offended at what God is saying. And if you're at odds with God, I would encourage you to sit down, listen, be humble, and do what he says. That's good counsel, friends. If what I say is considered hate speech by our current society, then what God says must also be considered hate speech. So you really don't have an issue with me, you have an issue with God himself. But I understand that in a society that cannot grasp God, cannot tangibly hold on to God, when it hates what God is saying, it will choose to take the messengers of God and try and snuff them out from proclaiming the word of God faithfully. And friends, if that does happen to me, I hope that I would be an example of someone that stands true on God's word and is willing to suffer for the gospel. And I would ask prayer for anyone who stands here before you and opens the word of God that there would be that kind of boldness and tenacity no matter what the text. And friends, this is one of the advantages of working ourselves through a book. We have to deal with this. And not only do we have to deal with this, we get to deal with this. We get to deal with a topic that is so relevant and public in our culture in our society, and and arguments and ideas are being thrown out all over the place, but in the midst of that, that noise, God has something to say to his church, and we would do well to pay attention. So let's read our text again, more specifically beginning at verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So friends, this this passage 
is full of warnings for us to take notice of. This past week, um, I went to the Bank of America and I was turning out of the parking lot on the boulevard of the Bank of America and I came to the light and the light was red and there was a gentleman who was slowly walking across because it said, you know, the walk thing was flashing and he was slowly walking across and I finally let him go across and, and then I went up to, 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 to that the, the intersection properly and I stopped and I looked around and it was clear to go and I turned right and started going down the boulevard and then behind me I saw this woo and I, I heard this woo and just saw these lights of you know red and blue and, and white kind of going on behind me and I'm thinking to myself oh I better you know move out of the way so they can get by you know and um, they weren't moving by and <laughs> And I'm thinking, okay, I just came out of the bank. Do they think I stole something? You know, what's going on with that? And then I pull over, and the uh, nice police officer gets out and comes to my window, and he says, uh, sir, he says, you, uh, you turned right on a red light. That is a no turn on red light, red light. And he says, there were two signs there posted that say no turn on red. Well, I was totally guilty. I, I totally missed those signs. I had no clue. I didn't see those signs at all. So I asked myself then, how, how could that happen? And so I, you know, I'm typically a, a careful and observant driver. No coughing or murmuring is allowed at this point. Um, this is not a time for crowd participation. Right. But was it, first of all, that I was too familiar with the territory? So I was not able to see the warning signs? Um, was it because I was distracted by other things, in particular this man that was crossing the street? I was, I was watching him cross the street, you know, thinking, okay, this is something I can do while I'm waiting. Was it because I was unfamiliar with the place, and so I totally missed it? And there's some element of truth to that, because I don't typically go to that bank, it's where we do our church banking, and every once in a while, um, I might stop in there for some reason, and you know they've changed everything on the boulevard and whatnot. Um, or was it I, just the fact that, um, you know, I, th I thought that I was familiar with the territory, and so I was functioning not based on the signage, but what I had done at other times at other intersections. And probably that's what I was doing. I was just coming to a red light, and I was watching some guy and thinking about other things I had to do, and, you know, I did everything right, and turn properly, except it was illegal to turn on a red light. Now, what's the point of all that? I'm not trying to get your sympathy here. The bottom line was this. There were warning signs, and I failed to see them. And friends, as we come to this passage, it is full of warning signs. And the question is, will we pay attention to them? Will we take time to look at them, all right? This, this passage reveals to us the nature of man apart from God. And it's a nature that willfully exploits other people for personal gratification. I like what John Kenneth Galbraith says. He says, under communism, man exploits man. He says, under capitalism, the situation is exactly reversed. Let that settle. There'll be some, some late K 
catchers there probably, right? But what happens in, in Christ is that there is this new, I want to say world order that he creates. It's called the church. It's called the kingdom. And in his kingdom, man is not to exploit man. But man is to love him, serve him, and give him the gospel. We can go on talking about all the things that God says that we are to be doing with one another and to one another. There's a new worldview. There's a new ideology put in place. And so God, through Paul to the church, is giving the Ephesian believers and ultimately us a picture of what our view should be on these very important and serious issues. Now let's just remind ourselves from the book of Ephesians some things that we've learned. First of all, we are the, re- the recipients of spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Chapter one, verse three. It just begins by throwing that out there. This is who you are. You are the recipients of these spiritual blessings. And as we walk through those passages, we're just like, wow, this is absolutely incredible. Secondly, individually, we are his workmanship created uh, in Christ Jesus for good works. Chapter 2, verse 15, I think it is. Then corporately, later on in chapter 2, we are the new man, that is the church, through whom God's wisdom is put on display for the world to see. So this is, this is God who's, who's called us out of darkness into light. He's taken us from the place of being enemies and now brought us into his family. And we are his workmanship, created for good works. We are the church now that has been created so that it can display the wisdom of God for man to see. What a huge responsibility, but what a great privilege he has placed on us. And so this is who you are, and since that is who you are, united in Christ, and you see that phrase over and over in Ephesians, you and I are to live out that unity, and we are to walk worthy, chapter 4 and verse, I think, 1 and following, and then here in chapter 5, we are to walk in love, and then a little later in the passage we read, we're to walk in the light. And so this idea of walking This idea of living out who we are in various contexts is now part of the discussion. And the last section we looked at was the put off and put ons. How we move from this place of what we were before Christ to this this reality of what it means to grow in Christ by, by, by putting on the righteousness of Christ, by replacing sinful behavior and being renewed in the spirit of our mind and therefore putting on what Christ desires for us to do uh, in those various areas. We looked at anger and, and, and stealing and um, a few other things that were in that passage that I can't remember right the second. Now, if we focus at chapter five and verse one, it says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He's placed us in the context of a world that is sinful and he wants us in our, through our lives to be a fragrant offering to him. And that in being that fragrant offering, we will have an impact on those that we are interacting with. And so this morning, I want to kind of just in a sentence here summarize what, um, what the, the, the purpose of our text is. Paul is 
warning the Ephesian believers, and we can say, and us, who are living in a sexually crazed culture to evaluate their sexual values in light of their union with Christ. Now Paul is warning these Ephesian believers who are living in a sexually crazed culture. Ephesus was where the temple of Diana or Artemis was located, all right? Worshiping in that temple involved in many situations um, worshiping that God through prostitutes, through orgies, through things that are totally lewd. And that was the norm. That was acceptable in that culture. And the gospel came. <laughs> and people are radically changed. And Paul is speaking now to those believers. And he's saying, listen, <laughs> you who are in Christ need counsel, need guidance on how to, how to frame your, your values as it relates to the subject of sex and sexuality in such a way that it would glorify me. And friends, if you go outside of California, if you go to, let's say you go to Ohio, or you go to Florida, whatever, and, and you mention to them, hey, I'm from San Francisco. You know, typically they're not thinking about the Giants. Typically, they're not thinking about the 49ers. They're thinking about, oh, that's the hotbed of homosexuality. That's just the reputation that this region has. We are living in a context that is sexually crazed in a way that does not glorify God. Now, that is not me communicating hate speech. That is simply reflecting what God says as he reveals his will to the Ephesian church and looking at the same subject matter saying, hey, it's pretty similar here. So we wanna begin this morning by looking at what I'm calling a challenge or a challenging exhortation concerning our sexual values. And by sexual values, I mean, what do you believe? You know, what do you, what do you say is, the, is appropriate behavior? What do you say is the appropriate kind of speech? What, do you, what is the appropriate attitudes that Christians should have, God's children should have on this subject? So what Paul describes next is the opposite of a life of sacrificial love. He's talked about walking in love, and now this is the opposite, okay? He says, don't be like the self-indulgent world around you. And he stresses that what he is describing should not be found in the behavior and speech of authentic Christians at all. In fact, there are activities and attitudes that every Christian should avoid. Now, tomorrow, as we just you know, prayed, um, you know that there's a team going to Bolivia, and we're going to do ministry in Bolivia. But one of the things that Bolivia is known for is its roads, in fact, there is a road from La Paz to, um, let's see, where is it, Coroico, uh, that has been given the title, The World's Most Dangerous Road. You go to YouTube and just type that in, this will come up, and it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's narrow, and it goes on for miles, or over there, kilometers, right? And it's just this narrow road, and these big buses will travel on this. This is so dangerous that in the course of the year, as they've averaged things out over the context maybe of about 10 years, um, they, they estimate that 26 vehicles plummet over the edge every year 
and claim over a hundred lives. So, imagine I'm taking a group of young people to Bolivia on a missions trip, and we have to drive that road. Of course, I'm not gonna drive, um, and so we are looking and we're, we're wanting to interview maybe some prospective drivers, and so we, we go to the first person, and we say, okay, you know, we need a good driver to take us down this road. It's really important for us. And the first man says, hey, I've driven that road for 25 years. It isn't really that dangerous. I have experience. That's all that matters. You ask the next guy. And he says, sometimes it's good to get close to the edge to build up your confidence that you will be okay and that you can make it. The third guy says, I think I'm a good driver, but I will do everything I can to keep away from the edge. I will avoid it at all costs. Of those three, which one would you choose? And I know you're saying, I'll just fly. Thank you very much, right? (laughs) Now, the point here is this. We are not to flirt with the things that God says that we should avoid. We are to avoid them. We are to get away from them. We're to stay completely out of the picture of them. Yet at the same time, we live in a context that is full of these things. This is what he calls us to. So there's a challenge here that he wants us to pay attention to. First of all, a challenge regarding our sexual behavior that we are to avoid. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So let's just walk through these terms. First of all, sexual immorality. This is the Greek word porneia from which we get the word pornography. The word, however, um, does not refer to lewd pictures or films. Instead, the word denotes any kind of sexual intercourse, especially adultery and sexual relations with prostitutes. It's a word that includes any kind of extramarital or unnatural sexual intercourse, okay? So it's a very broad word, um, but it's also a very very pointed word, okay? The next one, impurity. This is a word that would include the sinful behaviors that we've just mentioned, but goes far beyond that to embrace defiling practices associated with sexual sin. for example, any activity with a prostitute, okay? Any homosexual encounter, any kind of sexual activity that isn't quite intercourse but goes beyond the boundaries of purity and dignity. Now, this was certainly a reflection of the sensual worship considered as normal in the Ephesian context due to the Temple of Diana and so on, right? Then there's covetousness. You're like, well, where did this come from? How does this fit into this context? The idea of this word in this context is a greed for someone else's body. It is a reflection of the 10th commandment not to covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And so the idea here then is is not coveting someone else's body. And friends, greed for someone else's body is what happens when people are looking at pornography. I mean, if they're on the internet, which is where most of it takes place, right? They're clicking through pictures and saying, I want that one, all right? That's coveting. 
That is greed for something that's not yours, to be yours for a moment. It is what is going on in the secret areas of the heart when you're imagining yourself with someone else. When I was in uh, Buffalo, New York as a youth pastor, I used to host a live call-in program every week called Teen Focus. And one night, um, a woman called and wanted advice on marriage. And so I asked, uh, I asked some of the basic questions, um, and she wanted you know, to know whether this is a, a person that she should marry. So I walked through these, these general questions. Is he a believer? Yes. Is he active in the church? Yes, he's very active. Does he hold a steady job? Yes, he does. He's a very diligent worker, she said. H- how does he behave with others? Well, he, he's, he's kind, he's affectionate, he's, he's thoughtful. Okay, what about his mom? Well, you know, he, he dotes on his mom. Then the more we talked, though, the, the more bizarre the conversation came. You have to understand, this is, a, this is you know, going over the airwaves as we're talking, okay? So I asked her, how often do you go out on dates? And she said, never. Well, when do you see him? At church. Do you sit with him at church? No. Why don't you sit with him at church? Because he sits with his wife and kids. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. I didn't make that up. This is true. And so, of course, I told her immediately, lady, you need to have nothing to do with this man. You are to leave him alone, and you're coveting another woman's husband. And friends, people have thoughts in the privacy of their hearts about other people that are of a sexual nature, of a sensual nature. And friends, that is coveting. I determined that day one of the first questions I would ask in a situation like that is, is he married? (laughs) It would have solved a lot of problems. Now let's notice the warning that we're given here. The sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So this kind of activity should not even be talked about or even mentioned as coming from the body of Christ. It is improper behavior. So much so, if you just look over at verse 12, it tells us, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. In other words, not only should believers shun these sins, but also avoid thinking and talking about them. Now, leaning a little bit on Titus 2, which is for what you've been studying the last two weeks, this is the kind of behavior that does not accord with sound doctrine. This is the kind of behavior that does not adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't fit. It doesn't match when the world looks at it, it doesn't say, oh, sexual immorality, Christ. Oh, they go together. No, not at all. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We've been called, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and guaranteed an inheritance. We've been declared complete in Christ. We've been declared righteous, covered, and infected with an alien holiness that comes only from God. And friends, as John Stott puts it well, holiness is not a condition into which we drift, but rather an activity working out of what has already been worked into us. So, in other words, without Christ, without the gospel being appropriated to our lives, we cannot reach holiness. 
Holiness is granted to us, but then we are to be holy because we are holy. That whole process is, is taking place. It's there, already put into us, and then it works its way out in how we live based on what God says. So we are holy in Christ. Now notice Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Turn back a few pages, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him, that's God the Father choosing us in him, that's God the Son, before the foundation of the world, notice before the creation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. So he chose us to be holy. He chose us to be blameless. And in embracing Christ as our Lord and Savior, a radical change took place in us, and that is that we were declared holy. It is right that their lifestyle is consistent with their calling. That is what Paul tells the Thessalonian church. If you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 3 and following, some similar things are said here. And this is a consistent theme with Paul. We see this in Thessalonians and Romans and 1 Corinthians. We see it, of course, in Ephesians. For this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 and following. For this is the will of God your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. How? In holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So, we are holy in Christ, but we are to pursue holiness because of Christ. And this pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of that which is proper, fitting, and accurately reflects the gospel that he has brought us, this new life. So we are called to live our lives in such a way that our behavior is proper, matches our calling. Now, let's move on to the next section here under this challenging exhortation. We've seen this this, uh, sexual behavior to avoid. Now let's notice the sexual speech to avoid. Verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Now, by the way, each of these three words, this is the only time they're used in the New Testament. Filthiness. This is also translated obscene and refers to oral filth and dirty language. It refers to someone who has no regard for standards. This person will not listen to or respect others. It is behavior, or these are words that are utterly disrespectful. It is speech that is disgraceful. And so in many translations, it is translated obscenity rather than filthiness. So this idea of filthiness or obscenity. Secondly, foolish talk. Literally, moronic talk. One who talks like a fool. Proverbs 15.2 says this, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. You, You notice some of the behavior of the fool in Proverbs, they're just pouring out of the heart, and it's just, it's never good. 
the foolish talk is not so much an issue of intelligence, but one of morals. James Boyce says this, it is a word that refers to one who makes light of high standards of behavior, thinking that it's funny or sophisticated to tear down anything that is high or praiseworthy or ennobling. So this empty, wasteful, idiotic, and disrespectful talk is foolish and goes hand in hand with what comes next, crude joking. And of course the idea here is coarse, vulgar humor. Now just wanna make sure that we are all on the same page here. Scripture recognizes the rightful and healthy place of good humor in the life of a believer. Right? We wanna be careful that in particular on a subject like this, that, that as believers, we're not saying that we have to be prudish and we can't laugh and enjoy life. We are supposed to have fun. We're supposed to have a joyful heart. It's a good medicine, Proverbs 17.22 says. Ecclesiastes 3.4 tells us in a list of other things that there is a time to laugh. Laughter is good medicine. It is good to laugh. Who here likes to laugh? I like to laugh. I enjoy Laughing, and I enjoy laughing sometimes when I'm crying, and it's hard laughter. Now, although crude joking may produce laughter, and I just want to pause there and say this, that much humor um, is mechanical. In other words, there are techniques to say certain things in a certain way that when you hear it, it's natural for you to laugh, and you find yourself laughing, and, and as a believer, kind of restraining on that because there's a technique that is used. But it's not laughter that, that is healthy for you. It's laughter here that is poison to the soul. It is the kind of quick-witted, double-meaning, sleazy talk that is so prevalent on the internet and on blogs and chat rooms and TV and on the radio and in magazines, and we go on and on and on. And it's the kind of wit that can easily go on between careless friends. Again, John Stott says this, all three, filthiness, foolish talk, and coarse joking, refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in a dirty conversation. Now, that's the reality of the scenario. This is what God, through Paul, is saying to the Ephesian church that you need to avoid these three behaviors with your speech. And so the warning comes to us now, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are what? Out of place. All right? it, it, isn't, it doesn't fit in any way, shape, or form. You are God's children. You're his family. You're his workmanship. You're his church. And sexually vulgar language is out of place for the body of Christ. I find this to be really frustrating living in a sex-crazed world because I enjoy clever humor. My family knows I love punning. I love quick wit. And I enjoy you know, the skills that are involved in humor. And sometimes I find myself watching something on TV that, that seems to be witty and has all those things. And I, th I think to myself, well, finally, here's a show that is really funny, only to find out that one person's humor now is, is, is desired to be trumped by others around that person uh, so that they can top that person's humor. And when that happens, 
the, the, the level and the kind of jokes that take place get worse and worse and worse. And they always go down the path of degeneration toward sexual things. And it's just like, you know, come on. Why can't we just have good, healthy comedy? Well, because the mouth of fools pours out folly. Friends, so much of what we watch, read about online, or listen to on the radio is rampant with attitudes, behaviors, and speech that is either heading down the road toward these six descriptions or has already arrived. It's out of place. Now, let's move on to a different attitude, but this is an attitude to embrace. You say, man, this is, Heavy stuff, Pastor Rod. I mean, you're just kind of like, well, these are, you know, don't, 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 okay? Well, this is wise counsel from a sovereign God who loves his children who are living in the context of sin. Now here's what he says that we are to do. Instead, so rather than having this sinful behavior and this sinful talk, he says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. It is a response of gratitude to God's spiritual blessing in the life of the believer because God has called us out of darkness into light. He's breathed life into our dead souls. He's brought us from alienation to being part of the family of God, and so we have much to be thankful for. But thanklessness is the fruit of rebellion in unbelief. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, because, uh, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's this lack of gratitude, there's this lack of thanks that is the fruit of unrebellion in unbelief. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us that being ungrateful is a mark of unbelief in the last days. It says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Ungrateful. So thankfulness and gratitude should accompany everything we do as Christians, just like Ephesians 5 and verses 18 and following, saying, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, uh, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we get up in the morning, we should take time to thank God that we're still alive and we're able to face the day. When we sit down for a meal, it's a good time just to pause and to reflect on God's provision for us, whether it's meal, money, you know, all sorts of different things. It's just a good time to pause. When we put our head on the pillow at night, we can give thanks that, that God has been with us all the day, throughout the day, regardless of the struggles and things that have been present. Thankfulness is not just a daily activity for believers. It is an ongoing attitude of gratitude. And it is rooted in the gospel that tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world and that when we get to heaven, we have an inheritance with Christ awaiting us. We choose to ignore those things. 
then we can slip into unthankfulness, ungratitude. So there are a number of things that Christians should be thankful for from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Our union with Christ, our spiritual blessings, the truth that he has given us, thankful for how God is working in us day by day. But in the context of the verses that we're looking at right now, Paul is stressing that we should be thankful for something different. We'll put it this way. We ought to be thankful, first of all, for the gift of sex when properly enjoyed and in the right place. All right? And I'm getting those words from what we just looked at. Sex that is proper and in the right place. All right? Christians are never to be prudish about sex. Now, I don't mean just walk around you know, your, your neighborhood saying, sex is great, sex is great. All right? You'll be misunderstood. But we must be open and real and honest about sex has been given to us by God as part of the enjoyment of what it means to be married and nurturing that relationship with that spouse. So when Christians talk about sex, it should be done in such a way that God is honored and the world around us can be jealous because it's not just about mechanics. There's something more in our marriage that people can long for. And not only the gift of sex, but the gift of the gender that God chose for you. When God chose you before the foundation of the world, he was not confused. Okay? If you are a man, thank God for that role and the responsibility that comes with it. If you're a woman, thank God for your role and the responsibilities that he's called you to. Paul's exhortation is in direct opposition to the sexual behavior and speech of ungodly paganism, the world in which we live. So let's return to this list and seek to formulate a biblical attitude towards sex. You might want to say Christ-centered sexual values that flow out of what he's just said. I'm just going to look opposite, okay? Biblical sex is marked by a behavior that is, first of all, moral. It's not immoral, it's moral, all right? It's healthy. It is a, an accurate reflection of what God has created us for. It's pure, all right? It's pure. It is selfless. And then biblical sex is marked by speech that is clean and wholesome talk. Just a word of caution here. You don't have to get worldly in what God has given you as a gift in order to find satisfaction. Okay? So don't don't gutter talk what God has blessed as beautiful and honorable simply because that's what the world does. Speech that is wise to reinforce a God-centeredness and a desire to stay within the bounds of God's will. It's, I mean, it's, it's language that is encouraging people toward purity, people toward, hey, wait, people to, toward, hey, listen, I blew it here. Okay, well, from now on, you know what? You can honor God with your life and you can find full restoration with him through forgiveness. 
It's speech that is wholesome. Okay, these are just the opposites of what he said that we should avoid. So Paul's purpose in these verses is not to condemn the Ephesian believers. And I hope you get that. But it is to encourage them to walk worthy and to walk in the light as followers of Christ. He recognizes that they're living in a difficult pagan society. Anyone that walks through those doors is entering a difficult pagan society. And quite frankly, that pagan society has come in here. And he has described that pagan society as living in the futility of their minds, chapter 4, verse 17. But then he says, you did not learn Christ this way. So in order to walk worthy, he wants us to see what an unworthy walk looks like. Because we may be deceived into thinking that we're okay. In other words, we might be driving that bus close to the edge thinking, you know what, I got it covered. Only to find out the ground's about to drop from under you. Our minds have been renewed now through the reading and the preaching and the teaching of God's word. We can put off the remnants of the old man thinking and behavior and put on the habits and behavior that reflect our union with Christ. This is the challenge. This is his exhortation. This is what he's pushing the church to hear and to comprehend. But now he moves into a second phase in this these, these few verses that I'm calling a chilling conclusion. A chilling conclusion concerning our sexual values. What Paul has been saying is strong teaching. But it's teaching that has as its goal a freedom in Christ that comes through repentance and forgiveness. And hear this, behind every warning there is a loving God who wants us to honestly evaluate where we are based on his word. And if we're found guilty or falling short of violating his will, he calls us to repent of our sins. And friends, when we repent of our sins, you will find full forgiveness of your sins and restoration. So behind a warning is the opportunity to repent, to restore your relationship with God and to find forgiveness. So he's not just here saying, all right, Ephesians, you're living in a pagan society. I'm just gonna hammer you with this. No, he's saying, listen, look out. Be aware. Don't get sucked in. And if you've fallen, if you still have the remnants of your old man there, there's restoration, there's forgiveness because you are one of my children. And friends, this is where Satan will put doubts in your mind. Doubts like, hey, God hates you because of your sin. Or, why would he want to forgive you? You have been too sinful. You've rejected him too many times. Or, you know that you're just going to do the same thing again, so what's the point? That's why in 1 John, in verse, chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, fair, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
There's forgiveness and there's cleansing. Now one of the things that happens with sexual sins is this feeling of dirtiness. And you might even find that you have sought forgiveness, but you still feel dirty. But God promises, listen, when I forgave you, I also cleansed you. You may feel dirty, but God says, you are squeaky clean. Because that's a matter of belief. It's a matter of trusting what God says to be true as actually being true. But friends, there are, if I can say this boldly, there are many people within the body of Christ who have been tarnished or damaged through sexual sin, who have responded to God seeking forgiveness, have received that, but still struggle with their cleanness. And we want to be compassionate and tender and nurturing and helpful. But one of the things that has to take place is that we believe that what God says is true is actually true. If he says you're clean, how you feel doesn't change the reality, does it? So through that relationship, through that confession, we can be restored to him. Now, here is what he says. This is pretty profound, right? Here's the, the first, I would say, warning that he says we need to pay attention to. I'm saying this, idolatry will keep you out of heaven. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, did you hear how he begins this? You may be sure of this. What he's saying is certainty. And he's expressing certainty that should send chills up and down your spine. Sexually immoral people, impurity, people who are covetous, are by definition idolaters. They replace God at the highest priority in a person's life. So when you want to indulge in that sexual thought, you have just pushed God off the priority table and set up your own idol to worship. When you have to outdo your acquaintance in telling a questionable joke, you've just pushed God out of the way and put self on the throne. And when you place having sex before marriage above God's call for purity, you have just made an idol out of sex. It's idolatry. That's what he says. That's how he summarizes it here. Secondly, deceitful and empty words will bring on God's wrath. Again, that should send some chills up and down your spine. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's step back a little bit here. If someone is an unbeliever, if they are not a child of God, let me just hear this, they are already 
under the wrath of God, okay? But he's giving expression here to communicate to those who are believers or those who may be believers, pseudo-believers, you need to listen to what God is saying here because not paying attention to it may call upon you the wrath of God. The very reason why you're destined for wrath is because you're not willing to pay attention to this. I don't know if you listened to Al Mohler's, um, the briefing in the morning. Every day Al Mohler puts out a 20-minute briefing. It's actually, it's a podcast. It's actually really, really helpful. And this past week, um, he talked about three church denominations that are meeting this summer. Um, each gathering of these denominations, the main, one of the main issues is a position that they should have or not have on gender and sexuality. So I want to share a little bit from that conversation. I think it will help us understand what Paul is saying here and how it impacts us. So we'll start with the Southern Baptist Convention. This week, um, the Southern Baptist Convention met in Baltimore, Maryland, and one of the significant resolutions they adopted was a strong biblical statement on the subject of gender roles and sexuality. The resolution overwhelmingly adopted by the, the, the messengers made very clear that God as creator has created human beings as male and female and that gender or sex designation is part of the goodness of God's creation. It's a very strong statement, a very biblical statement, a very solid statement. In other words, it, gender, is not something that is merely biologically imposed on us. It is a gift of our creator who created us male and female for his glory and as a basic pattern of human flourishing. Okay, so you have the Southern Baptists, who, by the way, were, were at one time a little bit adrift and have come back very strong say, over the past 20 or so years. And so they're reinforcing what Scripture actually says and putting in a statement that clarifies things for all those that want to hear, in particular for their denomination. Then we move to what's called the Presbyterian Church USA. This is an old and liberal denomination um, and they are going to be meeting in Detroit, probably because there's cheap housing right now. Um, and the PCUSA is a liberal denomination and has been adrift on the subjects of homosexuality and same-sex relationships for decades. At this gathering of 5,000 representatives, they are going to be voting on a resolution to normalize same-sex marriage as a ceremony recognized by their denomination. And it's clear that the socio-political changes that, uh, that take place in our country, um, or as those things take place in our country, so must the church. That's, that's the thinking, that's the reasoning behind it. Even if it's a clear violation of what scripture teaches. Now you see, when I say it's a liberal denomination, part of their liberalness is the fact they don't believe that the Bible is actually God's word to be understood and taught and proclaimed and read literally. Okay, So here's how one newspaper writer gleefully reports on this. I would argue that the effects of the PCUSA um, decision will ripple out from there, and those effects should matter to all of us. What's happening among Presbyterians this year isn't as much about defining marriage or about marriage rights of same-sex couples. It is about discerning what is right with respect to human relationships. That's pretty significant. In other words, we're changing 
the moral code of what is right. Okay? That's Presbyterian Church USA. That's, by the way, there, there are many Presbyterian denominations. That is just one of them. Okay? So I don't want you to think this is all Presbyterians. Then there's the United Methodist Church, the third one. All right, another liberal denomination, um, the United Methodist Church is seeking to manipulate its official stance that says homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. That's what their documents say. It's their official stance. But in a, in a document entitled A Way Forward, they're saying each church or regional body will have the option to make up their own minds on issues such as affirming gay clergy and same-sex marriage. So just you gotta you know, think through this one. So the official stance is homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. But in the church, you can have a homosexual pastor teaching a distorted form of Christian teaching. And that's seen as a healthy solution. Okay. Now, now the point here is this. There is utter confusion when you remove yourself from a standard, which is God's word, clarifying the issue. Once you step away from God's truth, you're just polling the audience. You're just trying to find out what is, you know, what is the direction of society because it doesn't matter what we officially say, you get to choose what you want to do. It's like, what kind of compromise is that? I mean, it's kind of like me saying to my kids, hey, listen, in our home, we do not watch R-rated movies. But you can decide what you want to get at the video store. That's up to you. But we do not watch them, but it's up to you if you choose them. It, just, it doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't make any sense, but it makes plenty of sense to people who actually want the freedom to do what they want to do. It makes logical sense. Oh, here's a way we can do it. If we can find a way to do it, we'll do it. And friends, I take the time to share these stories with you because there are hundreds and thousands of voices from all over society that are seeking to influence us with deceitful and empty words. And these deceitful and empty words are encouragements to those who are God's children that the sinful behavior and speech, um, the sinful behavior and speech surrounding a pagan society is actually permissible before God. Or to put it differently, that God is indifferent to these activities. Now, honestly, can a true believer read through Ephesians and say that God is indifferent to these activities? I guess you could say it, but you would have to be totally distorted in your thinking about it. God is very clear. So the goal of such an ideology is deception. The means of that ideology is empty words. In other words, words that are void of truth. Well, what truth? God's truth. They are words spoken with religious and societal authority. But they are words that deliberately distort or willfully ignore the clear teaching of God's word. And that's why they're called the sons of disobedience. Now, to make sure we're clear, that is exactly where we once lived. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we shouldn't necessarily expect them to be any different. Now when empty and deceptive words become the norm, then as Paul says to the church in Rome facing a similar issue, this is Romans 1, 24 and 25, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And when you exchange the truth of God for a lie, you will stop allowing God's word to be the standard measurement for appropriate and healthy behavior. It will be replaced by the will of man by consensus, and the will of man by consensus is fueled by a heart that is greedy to satisfy its own selfish desires. So, what God has called holy is now turned upside down and called hate speech. When God calls, what God calls an abomination is now called the way forward. And all of this is happening in the context of the visible church. Okay. Now they're not the true church. You can gather people together and call them a church, but unless they are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, they are not the church of God, and they're not part of the kingdom of Christ or of God. They are the recipients of God's wrath, we're told here. These are the two consequences. They're under his wrath now because they're in unbelief, but they will be under his wrath in the last day unless they humbly turn to God and repent. So here's the warning. Verse seven, and this is kind of where it's coming to a head, and here's ultimately what Paul is saying in simplified form. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Christians who are called by God and united in Christ have no business sharing with disobedient unbelievers in their immorality. We're not to be swayed by their deceitful words. We're not to be consumed with their idols. Instead, we are to be pursuing our partnership, our fellowship with Christ and other faithful believers so that we can faithfully declare the wisdom of God for the world around us. My friends, this is not easy because we are bombarded with this stuff, are we not? I mean, it's just, it's just everywhere we turn. Here's some concluding thoughts, some things I think are, are helpful for us to make sure that we say today. First of all, there are some very likely in this room today that are struggling right now with sexual sin. And so for the person who is presently in the chains of sexual sin, let me plead with you to heed God's warning and remember, on the back of every warning is a call to repent. And through that repentance, be restored back to God. Let me just pause here and say, you know, when I was, when I was young and in youth group, um, <laughs> this topic was talked about a lot. 
and, and you, you almost got to the place when the word repent was used in connection with sexual sin, you know, that there's this fire and brimstone kind of preacher pointing his finger down at you and screaming at you, um, and, and, and as if repentance was a, a harsh thing. Friends, repentance is a wonderful avenue of restoration that God has given us to come to him. It simply means that we recognize that what God says about our sin is true. It means that having seen that it is true, that before God we are saying we no longer want to pursue that sin, that we are turning completely away from it, and we're walking with our best effort and by God's strength in, in a way that would, that would glorify God. It is a total change of heart and mind that leads to a change in a person's life. And if you're a child of God, you and I ought to be repenting every day of various sins. So it's not just a word that we throw out as it relates to sexual sin. It's a word that we, we bring as part of a vocabulary saying, I, I need to repent of, of my, my lying. I need to repent of, of this bad thought that I had about a police officer that pulled me over or whatever it might be. But honestly, you just say all throughout the day, you, 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 your mind is battling sinful things. And you repent and you say, God, that was wrong. It was sinful. Forgive me. And I, wanna, I don't want to do that anymore. And so what's, what, what's calling here, if you, if you are in the, in the, the chains of, of sexual sin, I plead with you to repent and through that repentance be restored back to God. So will you see the sinfulness of your sexual practices and values? Confess them to God. Repent and then rest in the forgiveness that he gives through Christ. That's the first thing. The second um, area is this, past sexual sin. I touched on this earlier, but it is not unusual, even in a group like ours, for people to still be struggling with past sexual sin. In fact, many people that they know that are close to them would not know anything about what has happened to them, but when they lay their head on the pillow at night, every once in a while that memory comes and they're consumed with it and they're affected by it and they feel, they feel dirty and they, feel, they just feel um, that, that, that they are unworthy before God. And so for the person who's struggling with past sexual sins, I want to offer you the same bomb. If your sin is not repented of, um, then it is true, you are still defiled. But if, if it has been repented of, then... You need to rest in, in what God clearly says has already taken place in you. And maybe what you need to repent of is this attitude of unbelief that doesn't believe what God says about what he has done with you. Okay? And the third one is this. There are those who are the victims of sexual sin. Isn't that sad? I just hear about this all the time. But I tell you what, years ago, this happened and you didn't hear about it. It was kept hush, hush. And it was kept within the context of families. And, and so you had, in particular, you, you know, young women and sometimes young boys who struggle with these things. And so for the person who has been the victim of sexual sin, I want to plead with you to have someone mature in Christ walk you through God's word and help you to see yourself as God sees you. 
You've probably isolated yourself. You probably, you know, not wanted to talk about it with anyone. And so you don't, you don't want to trust anyone. You don't want to be vulnerable to open up. But yet, one of the, the problems with that is then maybe you are not dealing with what has happened to you in a way that God has, has laid it out for you to be fully and, and completely restored, not only to, to him, but to others. When you're holding on to sexual sin, it affects how you interact with others. And so God has a solution. God has a way for you to walk. And friends, I just want to plead with you, if, if that is you, don't hold on to it alone. Seek that godly, mature person that can help you walk through it. And then just notice the reality of this, the plague of sexual sin in the church. This is not something that's out there. It is out there, but it's not just out there. It is something that plagues the church. And um, so the reality is the church at large is suffering in the area of sexual sin. So it's really, really important, Gateway family, that, that this church is a safe place where people can repent and be restored and forgiven and learn how to get on the path toward becoming like Christ. And we've got to be careful that we don't stick our noses in the air. We don't look down on people if we are aware, if somehow we're brought into that net of knowledge that, that we're there to encourage, we're there to, to draw them to Christ, we're there to walk with them on the way, that this is, this is a place of safety. Now, I'm not saying, hey, if that's you, come up here and let me hear your story and you know, broadcast it to everyone. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about as you interact with some people that you trust and, and, and you pray about it and you struggle through it and you say, here's someone that I think is mature. Here's someone that's godly that, that God can use to help walk me through his will as it relates to what I've gone through. That that person will respond in confidentiality, in care, in love, and tenderness. Not in condemnation. Because the reality, if you're a child of God, you and I are no longer condemned. We have the, the hope and the certainty of heaven. But God has given us these spiritual blessings for now. And if we choose not to use them, if we choose to simply ignore them, then our life now is limited and hindered for his glory. So I want to plead with you. Let us be a church that welcomes people who struggle in this area with an idea that we want to help and we want to come alongside. So if, if God is striking a nerve this morning, it is a, our desire to help you walk through this path. And there are people in our church that are, that are ready and prepared, I believe, to walk with you in this journey. I don't want you to be alone. I want, I want to finish with one passage of scripture. You can just... Look up to the screen if you want. And friends, this is a bomb, this is a help, this is a reminder, okay, of who we are as a church. So here we have 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Have we not seen that in our passage? Do not be deceived. Has there been any deception in our passage? Yep. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were some of you. But just look at the, the beautiful words that come next. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, those three descriptions took place at your salvation. The moment you embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, the moment what God prepared before the creation of the world and, and was united with you in, in, in embracing him as Lord and Savior, the moment those two things came together and there was conversion, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were declared holy. And you were declared righteous before God. You were in right standing before him. That is your position in Christ now. And it never changes. Now what he's called us to do is to live our lives out of that reality in such a way that would please him with a desire to pursue being like Christ. And so we, we can stand on the foundation and the assurance of these realities even when we've struggled in these areas of sexual sin. Lord, help us today as we consider this incredibly weighty issue, as we think about those who are part of our church, as maybe we think about our own hearts and how we battle this and how we are, we, we are tainted in so many ways by this. We thank you, Lord, for the medicine that you give us, for the, the, the instruction of warning that you give us, Lord, that is from a heart that loves us and cares for us. Will we not just brush it aside? May we see the warning signs and thank our Lord for them so that we can be guided and strengthened by his word, his truth, his promises. And Lord, I pray specifically today for those who are struggling with sexual sin right now, that there would be a humility, a brokenness, and a desire to be conformed to you. Pray for those who have lingering memories of past sin, that they would find resolve and restoration in you. And Lord, for those in particular who have been damaged by others, who are the victims of, of sexual sin, Lord, they would, they would come running to you and find complete and total cleansing and find their identity, Lord, being in Christ as being the, the wonderful place to rest and that our church would be a place where we would not be afraid to deal with difficult topics like this, that we would learn to handle the word of God as medicine, as care, as a means of restoration for those who are struggling. I ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.